everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Savela. Wherever you may be in this wide, beautiful, crazy world of ours, you are part of this story circle. Today we're continuing our celebration of National Poetry Month here in the United States, and I'm really thrilled to be talking with poet and fiber artist Cindy Rinney about her most recent work, a novel in verse titled Moon of Many Petals. Cindy creates art and writes in San Bernardino, California, where she brings myth to life in a contemporary context. Moon of Many Petals is her second novel in verse. She's also the author of a full-length collection of poems, two chapbooks, and a full-length collaboration. Rennie's poetry and fiber arts elements inform one another, creating a narrative in text and visuals. She's a founder of Poetry IE, and her poems have been published worldwide. Welcome, Cindy. (laughs) I am so happy to be able to talk to you about this book. Moon of Many Petals is really beautiful. Thank you for having me. So maybe we can start by getting an introduction from you to this work. Yes. Um, This book is a little different than how I usually work in that uh, I created the artwork first, and I had done a series, and I had a bird and a geisha and a figure that looked like a geisha with wings. I really didn't know who all these characters were, except that I had the name Natsumi for the geisha. And I had the series up on my design wall, and one day I heard, tell our story. And I kind of took a step back and thought, what? So I started to entertain that idea that this was a narrative, and since there's fabrics on here for my Japanese pen pal, I thought, well, the story will be set in Japan. I've lived in Taiwan. I've loved Asian culture my whole life, so I use a lot of Japanese fabrics in my art. Maybe this will be in Japan. But one of the main ways I get inspiration is by taking walks, and I took a walk one morning, and I heard two things. I heard Manzanar and Stillborn, and I'm like, well, okay, Manzanar. That felt very random to me, but I've learned to pay attention to the muse, so I started researching Manzanar, and at the same time thinking about a child and a family. And when I was writing the book, it turned out to be the 75th year since the internment of the Japanese in America, World War II. So I thought that was quite significant. But I also felt it was important to get this book out now. One of the themes from the 75th year was never again, and that's how I feel. And to have a book to be against intolerance that seems to be growing in our country again. Yeah, wow. I love how you followed the inspiration that was coming in and paid attention to that. 
And what an interesting synchronicity that this came to you at this time, this time in terms of the history of the place, as you note, and also in this cultural moment, unfortunately. Yes, and a little bit of the story is set in Sendai, Japan, so I did get Japan in there some, but mostly it's about a family that's displaced. I mean, maybe it would be good to read us a few of the poems at this point so people get a little bit of the flavor of what you created. I think I'll read a few poems that are going to introduce the narrator, which is an unborn child who's observing all that's happening with their family. And I'll start with never. The shaman's circle encompasses the stars and beyond them the shadow of creation so vast it touches children yet unborn. That's by Nancy Wood. Never did I feel air, touch water, or follow breath. Soul has weight. Edges. Sometimes I dream of hearing the wind. Rested wings, two smooth skipping stones, and a soul inside the butterfly. Side by side like lungs, the edges fuzzed, began to flap, opened, closed. There I met my first divided cell. And then as the child develops, and bringing in a little of Japan, fingerprints, one. One day, sun split mountains, clouds, sky, lingering heat, as I would listen to the stones in my head tell me ancient stories. Two, at ten weeks, peaks and valleys texture and become my fingerprints. Three, fire jumps with plumes reaching high, firstborn eight islands of Japan, ancestors of trees and fish, sun and moon, also birth, north, south, east, west, above and below. So while I was writing this story, PBS had a special about the development and birth of a child. And so I was able to reference that as my book developed, but that also meant the poems had to be in a certain order because of the development of the child and it's a story. Doing a novel in verse can get complicated. I also wrote seasons, and uh, I don't start out writing the book in order. So the title, Moon and Many Petals, was actually in one of the first poems, but it ended up much later in the book. Um, When I start... I just kind of like my art collaging things together, and I just write, and I just write and write and write. And I end up using most of the poems this way, but it did involve a lot of reordering to make it a story. Yeah. So the last poem I want to read from the perspective of the narrator gives a little hint on why this is a stillborn. 
And I, when I researched Manzanar, I discovered there were some unmarked graves. And when I went there, there were several. So there could be this stillborn's grave there. Absence. After blue poplars, frosted fingertips static, my sketched brief face blends into rough trunk. Around this time, I would sing to trees like my mother sings. The icicle drips, dodges sun, touches the smoke of my breath, of my breath, of my breath. Earlier cranial sutures do not join at the base of my estranged skull. Thoughts blur in emptiness. A random black hole woodpeckered into my cranium. Because who else can I be? I got a sense that one of the threads running through this novel had to do with uniqueness, how unique we all are. Does that resonate with you? Yes, I you know, worked on the characters, the mother, the father, who they are. They ended up tying in a lot to myself because... As a youth, I taught myself watercolor and copied Japanese and Chinese paintings. And so Mio is a watercolorist because I know how that works. So I could put into detail the specific colors, how to mix, the light. I wanted the even the unborn child to have a personality that seems to be quite adventurous. Mm-hmm. She understands what's happening in the world politically, and at one point says, you know, I would pretend I was Korean so they wouldn't send me to the Japanese camps. And she, uh, you know, wants to explore the universe. And so there's a poem about that. And I, I think, I believe my children, their personalities are what how they behaved inside of me, so I know that this can happen. Mm-hmm. And that was important to me. That was another place where I found this novel intersecting with attitudes that we're experiencing culturally right now and the backdrop of Manzanar. You know, there seems to be a forgetting that we're all individuals, we're all unique. And so every time we generalize and categorize people, we're, we're doing them a disservice, and also we're losing out on what they've got to offer. That's one of the big things I say is to hear people's stories, and I, I am a storyteller, and I feel that takes away the, the percentages and the numbers because all these stories, people have faces, in the book, I have pictures that I took in Manzanar of a wall, a semi-transparent wall that has all the names of the people that were there. And there are many, many other camps, so this is just a number, but just having their names. And in the book, when you see these pictures, you can actually read some of the names, even though it's integrated with my art and my characters. And that just made such a big... The wall is huge. And it made a big impression upon me to stand there and look at that. And then having the American flag on there, too, and the barracks. 
in the mountains. And just how much propaganda there was at the time so that people were so afraid of their neighbors and the Japanese are unwanted and uh, we only want them in concentration camps were quoted in the newspaper and that they should be appreciative that they've been sent to such a beautiful place. Well, Dorothy Lang had a very different impression of of Manzanar with the wind coming through the tar papered places they lived in and uh, but, you know, we were telling them they should be happy. I went there when it was 106 outside, and inside was quite uncomfortable. And they lived in this all the time, without air conditioning or heat. And, you know, it's, it's freezing in the winter. It's windy all the time. But, you know, the Americans were like, oh, they should be appreciative of being there. Right. Because what was the alternative, I suppose? That we didn't kill them or make them all go home or something like that. Another thing that I noticed that feels like it echoes through past and present, and that's the notion of home. What we call home. How we make home. Whether or not we are home when we think we are. Does that lead you into any observations or any part of your process about this? I mean, I remember when I was there at Manzanar, I was really struck by the images of all of the building and the gardens and the ways that people tried to create beauty there in what is, as you described, a really harsh environment. I think this leads into a poem called This Was Unsteady, So my characters live in Morro Bay, and so they're at the sea, and they're displaced to basically a desert space. And throughout the book, I keep bringing back in sea creatures, sea stars, starfish, shells, uh, the dream of the ocean, because even though they've been displaced, Placed by force, Neo, especially the mother, carries the sea with her to this place, and it never leaves her. And I think, even though they tried to make this home, that it wasn't for her. And so, as this poem takes place, this is about the Executive Order nine zero six six has been released in 1942, on February 19th. And so this is some of Mio's reaction to that. This was unsteady. Walked barefoot on cold sand, sank, stumbled, almost fell. Spring dust licked Mio's face. Waves eroded as constant surfers pounded. Could not see past the ghost marine lair. Yet she knew eternity was there. Sure, it was there, a relationship in the balance. Decisions made to stop left her crumbled, now dependent upon the unknown. She trusted in rock salt, bubbled down, crawled into a house of sticks. Hermit crabs scattered across the mud, never restricted in avalanche of waves, pulled 
by unseen shiny moon. So the father deals with this a little differently later in the story. And this came out of, uh, I went to hear a panel at Cal State San Bernardino at the 75th year for last year. And one of the things that struck me is that uh, the men would go fishing outside the wire and basically risk their lives. And so I thought, wow, you know, I could have the father, Takumi, go fishing. And he speaks to the willow tree and to the swallow. And is this wise? My wife is expecting that I need to feel free. So home, maybe in this case, can also be about freedom. I mean, not one Japanese was tried and convicted of being a traitor during this time or afterwards in connection with the camps. So they were all allowed to go home. Mm-hmm. But he, you know, he needed just this moment of feeling free and having an identity. He's going to be a father and that he's still a person. So I'm going to read that poem. It's called Fishing Questions. Fishing Questions. Swallow darted through willow-laced branches. After strained winds, the leaves swayed. The twins followed in an attempt to be graceful. This family landed on willow limbs to listen as Takumi spoke out loud. Willow, how many have come to fish in this place under your gaze? Are you the bait that drew me in? Are you sad I risk my life to be here? Beyond the wire thorns, I stand free only to wonder if a net will catch me. I disdain this camp. Am I a fool? I have a wife with child, yet I cannot resist the song of the stream, the dance of your branches, and a piece of sky outside the guard towers. Willow feigned silence but prayed. Kishimujin, wrap him and his family in your arms of safety. Bring comfort instead of pain and light to the darkness. Fish eluded Takumi. Pine needles like veins swirled at his feet. Swallow and her children flew away. In the distance, barbed wire remained, but could not contain their flight. There are so many really beautiful moments in your work. And one of the things that I like about it is the complexity of what's going on. I mean, at one level, it's very kind of simple and serene, you know, the language that you use and the images that you create. But what's really going on in the depths and what you feel when you read it is far more complex. He's, he's risking everything at a time when... He has more responsibility than he's ever had for others, and yet... When I was looking at my art and creating my art, as I said, I didn't know who the winged character was, and I thought, oh, is it a fairy, an angel? I don't know. And as I was researching and writing the book, I discovered that butterflies are very important in Japanese culture, and are part of the Oban Festival. And so ancestors can inhabit the souls of the butterflies. 
And I had a friend talk to me about this and had this experience where he heard his ancestors as the butterfly swirled around him in Japan. So throughout this book, I have poems when I discovered my character was a butterfly and that it was the narrator. She visits her great-grandmother in Sendai. So I'm going to read one of the poems as they first are going to meet. And it's called Winter Evening Tea Ceremony. Epigraph, drinking a bowl of green tea, I stopped the war, Paul reps. Before matcha green tea and Japanese sweets, the connections in my brain blossomed. Soon I would meet in a past life great-grandmother Natsumi at a Sendai tea house. Lanterns glowed on the stepping stone path. An austere chill filled the air. I walked across an arched bridge frosted with ice and snow. My steps crunched. My breath created crystal silence in the inner garden. I locked my wings as I sat on the waiting bench. The tea ceremony began with the chime of a bell. I washed my hands in the stone basin as a symbol of weaving dust of the real world behind. I scooted into the tea house. The heaviness of my flying cranes over pine tree kimono rustled. My burgundy wings unfurled. This unborn soul occupied my butterfly geisha body. Candlelight spread parsed shadows across tatami mats. The sound of my feet swished under carved beams. I bowed then contemplated the Enso scroll, circle of enlightenment, stroked with goat hair, sumi brush dipped in ground ink. Below rested a celadon vase, embracing winter camellia and early plum blossom branches. My kimono brushed across the mats as I knelt to wait for my host. I wondered what great-grandmother would think of this faraway visitor. So one thing for me, as I'm writing, that's part of the wonder and magic of writing, is as I was working on this poem, I went to an art walk and walked in a space, and there was the Japanese circle painting, Bienso, looking at me. <laughs> and it's not something I see every day in my life. And these things, besides sitting there and meditating on it the whole time, that someone was reading, I just feel confirmed that I'm going in the right direction because I don't know about you, but when you're writing a book, you're like, what am I doing? What's going on? Is this anything? And so these sign points, guideposts, really help me to stay with it and know that this is true for me. You know, this is just my truth, but that I'm going in the right direction and that this visit ha could happen. Right, right. Yeah, there's this ongoing conversation. I mean, for me, it happens a lot when I am uh, learning a story. You know, many times I get attracted to a story and I'm not, I, I'm not sure why. And then I'll see things in the outer world that reference the story and then I start seeing it in my life and then it's like oh, okay now I've got and then learning it is effortless really because 
I feel like it's part of a conversation that I've got going on with whatever it is that's moving through me and my art form. Yeah, that's beautiful. <laughs> and I can imagine that you were pretty surprised to see that show up I in that I was very setting. surprised. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's part of the delight of it, isn't it? It is. It is a delight, the magic, and meeting people that have the experiences and can share things with you. Uh, one of my friends had an experience in Japan where this butterfly wouldn't leave her hand, and so I, I put that in the book, you know, just a little bit. But it was fun after it was published to be able to go back and tell her your butterflies in my book <laughs> because it fit in with the story and it really happened. Mm -hmm. And it was like my character didn't want to leave great grandmother, you know, so lingered on her hand. So, you know, I changed it to fit the story, but it's still something that happened in someone's life. So, even though I like to write a lot of mythological ideas, it's still grounded with, the real and things that do happen in people's lives. And sometimes they may even sound mythical, but they really do happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sometimes there's nothing more mysterious than, than the experience of living itself and the things that happen when we pause to think about that. You've told us that you start with the images and then things kind of pop in. Once you get going in it, or maybe now that you're completed with it, I'm wondering, do you feel like your process and combining the images with verse, do you feel that that allows you to explore um, topics in a different way or maybe reveal some kind of truth that isn't so easily discovered in a more straightforward, you know, history book or something like that? That brings to mind the swallow, because I had a bird, and maybe I would not have had this character in the story, mm -hmm. and it's an important part of the story, if it hadn't been in the art. And so, at some point, you know, I kept asking, what kind of bird are you, and found out it was a swallow, and I just really liked the, the image of the forked tail and the swallow, and I, as part of experiencing that, I bought an antique plate with swallows on it and Japanese cherry blossoms, and I just did a lot of reading, and, and the symbols for the Japanese, the swallow is spring, it's uh, loyal marriage, fertility, good luck, it also represents, you know, the circle of eternity of life and death, and so... It just seemed like a good character to weave through the story, mm -hmm. but it came out of the art. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, in this this case, like I said, I don't usually start with the artwork to create books and collections and stories, but this time it, it definitely made a difference having Natsumi be in Japan and figuring out who was the winged character. So I don't see... The images in here, like it's just illustrating the book. There's a discussion between the poems and the images. They're not always like a literal image of what's happening. 
in the poems, but they relate. So I like that idea. Do you feel that you learned anything in this process? Was there anything that emerged for you as a more personal insight? Absolutely. You spoke about home. So in 2003, I lost my home in the fire. So I was displaced under different circumstances. But I write a poem in here about they had an hour to grab what they could to put into two suitcases. Well, I had an hour. So I knew how I responded to that, what I could take, didn't take, and what happened. And of course, in this case, the objects that she takes, which I describe in great detail, uh, are connected to the story, but it still would have been things similar. And when you have those objects that I saved in an hour, those become very important to you because at the moment, you have nowhere for your mail to be delivered. You have no home, but you have a few objects that you've taken. And then, you know, I learned a lot about the meaning of home and being displaced, again, in a different way, but it still wasn't planned, and it was very sudden. So the more I write, the more I see myself in what I write, whether it's a, a collection of poems or a story. But I was definitely thinking about home and being gone. And in, in this story, I don't take them back, mm-hmm. but I returned to my a new home, built a new home, but I returned to the same place. But I made that choice. So my characters will have the choice of where they go after their Manzanar. Right. Is there, is there another poem that you'd like to share with us before we wrap this up today? Yes, I'm going to share the poem that has the title in it, Unnamed Ghost. Dead bodies are buried under the Sakura. You have to believe it. Otherwise, you couldn't possibly explain the beauty of Sakura blossoms. Morohiro Kaji. Takumi trusted the dissonant chorus of coyote, but only Wolf knew the moon of many petals. Top right moon crater cupped a cherry blossom, and then Mio smelled its scent, jumped back from the dance of fireflies. A month named after Mio, her parents at Tule Lake had protested. Mio casted a shadow at dusk, at last her stillborn, buried in an unmarked Manzanar grave. Fingers clutched the cora, never held baby girl, breast full of milk. And I think I'd like to close with, um, while writing the story, I found out a friend of mine's parents had been interned in another camp, and he had done a painting, which now hangs in my living room. And since this book's been launched, um, people have been coming up to me and sharing their stories, some of how they saved a farm for a Japanese family so they could come back, and others who knew people or others who had family members interned. And I think, again, that's another magic of writing is connecting with other people's stories. 
So if people are interested in buying your book or some of your other work or interacting with you, uh, how do they do that? They can go to my website, which is fiberverse.com. So fiber, like fiber art and verse, like poetry, fiberverse.com. The book is also available on Amazon, and they can find it in bookstores in the desert, like Rainbow Stew, Raven's Bookshop, and Space Cowboy. Do you send out announcements of readings that you're doing or other projects that you have um, going on? I have a monthly newsletter that has my art and poetry projects, readings, exhibits. So through my website, they can sign up for that. Okay. And also on my website, I have a, a button that has events. Very good. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to kind of walk us through Moon of Many Petals and uh, and especially to share about your process in creating it. I've had the privilege of seeing some of your artwork. It's really beautiful, and the kind of attention that it takes, that energy of that, I feel, permeates this whole book in a really lovely way. Thank you. Yeah, so happy Poetry Month, everybody. And thank you once again, Cindy. So that's it for me, Catherine Savela and Myth in the Mojave for this week. If you are finding value in Myth in the Mojave and you haven't yet joined the Bandcamp community, I hope you'll consider doing that. And I also hope you'll spread the word about Myth in the Mojave and share this program with other people who might be interested in it. Thank you so much for listening. Please tune in next time. And until then, happy myth-making, and keep the mystery in your life alive. Mm -hmm.